Hi, this is Bron Burton, and this is the podcast of Triple R's Radio Marinara, a weekly radio show exploring all things wet and salty, broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia, every Sunday. Hope you enjoy the podcast and feel free to get in touch with us via Radio Marinara's Facebook page. Good morning, good morning. It is one minute past the hour of nine o'clock. It is, you're on 3 Triple R. This is Radio Marinara. I'm Anthony Bokshaw. I'm Bron Burton. And I'm Kate Mills. How are you all? Pretty good. Yeah, great. My son slept in for an extra hour this morning. It's great. <laughs> Getting up later. This whole daylight saving thing, don't we love it? It's fantastic. Particularly with the sun just about to pop through. Um, nice northerly winds. And look, I'm going to go straight into a plug because we've got a very busy show. The Sea Slug Census is on this weekend. And I know there's been quite a few people out there over the last couple of days posting photos and sharing what they're finding. So if you're out and about and you're looking in rock pools or you're on a dive and you see some nudie branks, be sure to take photos and send them into the Victorian National Parks Association Reef Watch program because the uh, census started on Friday and finishes up on Monday. Some of the photos that have come through already are pretty cool. I've seen them on the socials. It's amazing. The I guess the colours, but I think... But I'm, people just getting out there and getting into it. And it's sort of a bit of friendly rivalry too. Like people are starting to find smaller and smaller and smaller species. Like some of these things are only a couple of mil. And I think often what's happening, people are like, oh, that looks like it might be. They'll take a photo, they go back, and then they blow, blow it up it to up. see whether yeah. it's a nudie prank or not. So some of the finds are incredible. So we've already had a couple of potentially new species sort of be found during the course of it. And huh. last year at this time we had 75 species found um, with one in or one group um, Beck and Chris, if you're listening, congratulations finding 53 species. Wow. Yeah, over the course of a weekend. So they've sort of set them a task, selves a task to try and find 54 this year. How long does it go for? Four days. So it started okay. on Friday and finishes up on Monday. And the, it was a, a weekend, but a few, few of the older crew were like, well, we don't like diving on weekends. It's too busy. Can you stretch it to a Friday and um, Monday when oh, everyone else oh, is at wow. work? So yeah, we've done that for a few of those people that have that luxury of diving when it suits them. Yep. Yeah. Excellent. So that was my quick plug. Plug for the slugs. Along with my good morning. Yeah, plug for the slugs. Damn, that was a, he got in there, didn't he? That was good. We've got to thank Tim, though. Yes. Oh, He's been doing... No, no, that it was great okay. to hear yeah. all that. <laughs> <clears throat> We've got to thank Tim. Another brilliant thank show. Thank you, Tim. Thank you, Andrew, very much. It's been very entertaining listening to Tim and Andrew this morning. It was. It always is. It always is. Had a slight twist this morning. I did enjoy it. A slight twist? Yes. They put their own special slant on it. Good fun. Soulful bits with horns. <laughs> Let's yes. go with that. Sorry, you're going to have to excuse me. I've got this dreadful cold and my brain is somewhat addled. And that my voice sounds like, oh, you know, what is it, Demi Moore from whatever episode or whatever film that was. We have a fairly... You're, ad- you're looking ad- very Demi Moore. Yeah, thanks. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Was it Demi Moore, you know, which era? I don't mind. But anyway. <laughs> Actually, I think she's aged. I think it's all plastic surgery. Anyway, huge show. <clears throat> Enormous show. You're kicking off? IPCC last week released mm. the special report on oceans and cryosphere, which is ice, under a changing climate. And Dr Cathy McGuinness will join us very soon, actually, in about 10 minutes. She's the uh, group leader of ex- Climate Extremes and Projections. What a cool title that is at CSIRO. She's going to join us and just kind of, we're going to step through some of the basics of it. It was because it's all changed, um, as you may have seen in some of the news, we're going to dip in behind that. 
And then sharks. Sharks in studio, very excited. We are going to have uh, Callum Dennis, who is a journalist um, by trade and has now turned his attentions uh, to sharks. And he's put out a book called Sharks, A History of Fear in Australia. And we're going to be speaking with Callum about the book and the research that he undertook in order to write it. Wow. And then will he move on to Indigenous Uses of Seaweed? We've got a busy show, don't we? Yeah. So we're going to have Zoe Britton's coming into the studio to. She's not only, and not only does she have a degree in environmental science, she's also an anthropologist as well, and she's going to talk about um, some of her findings and I guess all the work that she's doing going forward into the future. I think there's still a lot we don't know, so it'll be very interesting to hear from her. I've got a couple of news items as well. Should we have some weather? Let's do the weather. Yep. <clears throat> it was perfect. 23 when I came. Like just now, 23. It, it, as soon as I walked out the door, it was fantastic. So get outside and keep listening to the show. And we've got northerly winds at the moment, which are going to change around to westerly and then I think eventually southwest during the day. So if you're thinking of heading for a surf, um, probably get out there early is going to be the best bet. There's not much swell around, but if you know where to look, you'll find some. It's going to be top of 24, as I said, and then we're going to have that wind change later. Um, then we're looking at the rest of the week. Tomorrow's going to be 18 with a few showers increasing. Tuesday, 14 with a few showers. Wednesday, 15. Thursday, 16. <gasps> Friday, 17. And then back to 21 on Saturday. So, look, get out there and enjoy today. Um, and don't, you can put your, don't put your winter woolies away just yet. No, that's it. But get out there in your shorts and T-shirt and enjoy it and then be ready for the rest of the week. And when it comes to tides, if you're looking for slugs, low tides are the best time to get out there. So at Williamstown, we actually have a low at around 3.20 this afternoon. And if you're at Point Lonsdale on the open ocean, you've got a low tide at 11.45 today. Wow. I can't... I just don't... There's got to be a meteorological explanation for this. How could it have been so warm, then freezing cold, then so warm, then freezing cold? Because we live in Melbourne. Yeah, good yeah, point. How long yeah, have you been here? Right? <laughs> sorry, sorry. I've got some news. Have we yeah, got time? I, I we... Yeah, let's do it. Let's do some news. <laughs> I've got a bad news item and a good news item. Which one do you want first? Let's do bad oh. first, then finish with good yeah. and we'll go to music. All right, this is, this is somewhat tragic. Uh, White oh. House eliminates Marine Life Advisory Boards. Did you see oh, this one? No. This one Just came briefly. out during the week. So. Oh. The Trump administration will disband a group of experts that advises the federal government about marine life. So I'm reading this from The Guardian. Uh, so this is a an advisory group run by NOAA, the National Oceanic and Admini- Atmospheric, Atmospheric Administration, yeah. um, and uh, also the Interior Department's Invasive Species Advisory Committee are also going. So it's the Marine Protected Areas Federal Advisory Committee and the National sorry and the Interior Department's Invasive Species Environment Committee. So both spe- uh, both species well, uh, <laughs> they're an endangered species. Yes, though, well, yes, they're um, they're more than endangered. Now they're on their way out. So both committees have existed for more than a decade and uh, neither of them were given a reason why. But coincidentally, um, the uh, their job, the Marine Protected Areas Federal Advisory Committee, advises NOAA on ways to strengthen the country's marine protected areas and identify challenges facing them. So that won't exist anymore. But probably it sounds a bit like something that probably doesn't fit with the general Trump agenda. Well, one of the committees that has um, survived the, the big cuts is the Grand Staircase Escalante National Monument Advisory hey. Committee, which advocates opening up Utah's protected lands to mining. So I've told you we were starting with a... spectacular. Yeah, yeah, well, at the moment. Well, it used at the to moment, be. yes. Yeah. Yeah. Do you want to hear the good news story? Yeah, let's do the good news. Let's, let's go with this. So, um, Boyan Slat's Great Ocean Cleanup Project... Uh, which uh, the Ocean Cleanup Project, I don't, you're probably aware of this. So this is a project that was 
the brainchild of Boyan Slat, who at the grand old age of 25 has is already the CEO of this amazing company, came up with the idea when he was a student to set this up in the Pacific Ocean and try and resolve the problem of the, the growing um, Pacific garbage patch, which exists between Hawaii and the uh, Californian coast. They put out a trial a little while ago and had some problems with it, but they've um, gone back and revised their system and uh, it is now collecting plastic. So uh, about 600,000 to 800,000 metric tonnes of fishing gear, which is abandoned and lost at sea each year, another 8 million tonnes of plastic, um, which currently exists in this space. And they've actually, it's now proving to be successful. Has got some problems. Um, Fom Sharko will be in next week and no doubt we'll be picking this up because, of course, while it collects plastic and rubbish, it's also collecting sea life. So Uh, uh, it comes with a cost. Um, Here, here, you know, let's kickstart this debate. Do you know, is, is is it sea life that is kind of attached to the plastic or is it just kind of whoops I'm a jellyfish and I'm right there I and think I'm getting I think it's the latter um, well it's probably both actually thinking about it it's probably going to be both because if it was kind of you know just the stuff that's attached I can kind of go okay look you know we're in that circumstance yeah but if it's kind of everything in the in the region of it yep mm. I think with any kind of net you put in there's going to be bycatch yeah. that's right and it's going to come back to that discussion that debate about you know sacrifice yeah, where's the for, line? The, greater for good. the greater good yeah. um, is this worth it um, Ooh, it's a very interesting one. There's, isn't a there's a whole show in that one. There is a whole oh, show yeah. in that one. And I think Form's going to be um, <coughs> starting that discussion next week when she's on the show. But anyway, look, it's the the thing is working and amazing. Hats off to Boyan Slat for yeah, what he's done wow. because otherwise nothing would have got done. No, that's true. Absolutely, nothing would have got done. We're going to play a little message, then um, back with some music, and then back with um, Dr. Kathy McGuinness. Can talk about the IPCC, the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change, and their special report on oceans and the cryosphere. In a tick. Um, so last week, you probably will have seen the latest IPCC, as in the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change Expert Working Group report, get published. Um, and this time, it was the special report on oceans and cryosphere in a changing climate, and it was frankly very blunt and sobering. Kathy McGuinness, Dr. Kathy McGuinness was a lead author for one of the chapters and Kathy is the group leader for Climate Extremes and Projections, which has got to be one of the best titles in existence at CSIRO. And she knows a thing or two about this. Good morning, Kathy, and welcome to Radio Marinara. Good morning, Anne. How are you? Very well. And um, let's, let's start with the stats about the report because I think the kind of metadata of the report is quite interesting. How many people write a report like this? Where do they come from and how long does it take? Yes, so typically around, well, over 100 lead authors and coordinating lead authors will comprise the the sort of total effort that goes into writing these reports. They come from a range of disciplines because climate science is highly multidisciplinary. We need experts from geodesy to oceanography to atmospheric science, climatology, biology, marine ecosystems, what have you. Um, and and also regional balance. So we aim to get authors from, or the IPCC aims to get authors that represent uh, as many countries of the world as possible. So it's really sort of a balancing act to um, you know to to balance off all of those criteria for writing these reports. And then I'm assuming you don't just kind of meet on a Wednesday and produce it on the Friday and publish it on the Monday. Does it take a while? No, it takes... It, the, the cycle for a special report takes about two years. Wow. And during that time, we have 
four lead author meetings, which will be where all of the authors assemble. Um, the, the reports themselves go through uh, three cycles of review. Wow. After the after the first lead authors meeting, we we prepare a rough draft of content um, from a quick review of literature that gets internally reviewed by the IPCC um, and and some guidelines and feedback provided. It then goes. We then have uh, a second lead authors meeting. We prepare a first order draft. It goes out to the scientific community for review. Um, typically, we get. Um, well, I know our chapter got. Uh, a couple of thousand comments back wow. that we then all have to address, and then finally it goes to government review, and we so it's, it's a number of iterations um, between the first meeting and finally producing the report, and then and then there's the drafting of the summary for policymakers, which is the the, the shorter document that has yeah. to be approved line sentence by sentence by all the governments of the world that are you know, signed onto the package. Oh, so, <clears throat> so 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 the because because if anyone has had a look and I would and we'll put on our Facebook the the link to this if anyone has had a look the, the report is probably 900 and something pages but then there's all these other little reports that sit off the side and one of them is an update for policymakers which is really kind That's of the right. and so that so every government has to sign that off line by line yes Goodness. So, so in fact I, I was in Monaco for the final the, the final plenary meeting was held in Monaco week before last and so we had four days which actually ran into a fifth day where every every line of, of the of the document has to be approved by by countries and and, and so that process is really about honing the, the the language that's used to make it as relevant as possible for policymakers sometimes you know the science in, in writing a scientific document it's, it's a little complex and, and, and the messaging is not clear enough for policymakers so so that that process is useful in just uh, tweaking the language to make it more relevant and salient for policymakers. Yeah, of course, it's not so, about changing yeah. the science, but it's about making oh, it no, translate no, into, right. yeah. And so exactly. the, one of the things I was thinking is we, you know, we had a lot about kind of, you know, IPCCs and this thing was called SUROC and there's all these, these, these acronyms that float around. I thought we'll start with a bit of climate change lingo 101 and then we'll talk about the, what the report says. One of the things we hear a lot about is RPCs, RPCs, and there's a 2.6 and an 8 point, is it 5? Yeah. And what, what, are, what are they in plain English? So RCP stands for uh, Representative uh, Concentration Pathways. So when we run a climate model, we have to make assumptions about um, future society. So what kind of a, a society will humanity be? Will, will, be, will we be very globalised or, or, or not? What will population um, be because the emissions very much depend on human population and so on. And so social scientists make assumptions about, well, if we, got, if we follow this pathway, we're likely to be adopting a lot of clean energy alternatives. Uh, you know, if, if we're a global society working together, if, if not, you know, we might be all in our own little sort of um, countries doing whatever we like and it might not be um, terribly conducive to removing greenhouse gases. So RCP 8.5 is what we term a business as usual. If we keep on going along the pathway we're currently on, which is increasing, I mean, we're increasing carbon dioxide yep. and greenhouse gases, you know, about 
one percent per per year, we're going to end up at something like um, RCP eight point five by twenty one hundred, which is global warming of oh, it's between about three and five point eight um, degrees. If we adopt RCP two point six, we would turn the corner sometime mid century and start uh, you know levelling off on greenhouse gases and possibly be in the range of below uh, just below two to about three degrees. And so, so those yeah. those things are alternative future scenarios, one of which is yeah. us basically doing nothing and continuing the way we're going, exactly. and the other is us actually doing something. Okay. Exactly. They're, the, they're the extremes we consider. Yeah. There's a couple in the middle, and there are probably some others. That, um, that, but, but we have to commit the... Well, the, the, the global modelling groups, I mean, these climate models take an awful lot of time to run. I bet. So they have to be some standard set for all the groups in the world that run climate models. To, as to what set of runs they're to, to focus on. And so those uh, RCPs are what are given to the global climate groups to run their models on so that we can, so that climate scientists can then have a comparison of <coughs> some 40 global models, sorry, <coughs> across the globe, uh, done by groups across the globe. And, and so we can get some kind of a consensus of what all of these climate models are saying under the same forcing scenario okay so everyone's working on the same page and so what are the headlines then for the for the projections for because this report was about basically the oceans and the ice um on the on the mountains on the glaciers on the on the tops of the poles um and the oceans everywhere what's the headlines for you as a lead author that you think we all should hear yeah well i feel like the messaging in this report is uh, more urgent than some um than some of the earlier IPCC assessment reports, clearly the evidence is quite compelling for changes in the oceans and cryosphere. Um, <clears throat> we've seen the widespread shrinking of the cryosphere, so this is sea ice, this is shrinking of glaciers. We're seeing massive melt, melt episodes in Greenland and, um, and both east and, and west Antarctica. Um, so... And that's having a lot of change. That's having obviously impact on rates of sea level rise, which are now at about 3.6 millimetres per year and accelerating. Um, <clears throat> about 90, over 90 percent of the excess heat in the climate system ends up in the ocean. So the ocean is, is sucking that in. It's basically holding that it's in and expanding. In. That's yep. right. That's exactly right. But we've seen. Uh, a doubling of the frequency of marine heat waves since about 1982, and of course, marine heat waves lead to events like the coral bleaching we saw yeah. in the Great Barrier Reef in 2016, and, and it, we've continued to see um, episodes of bleaching in different parts of the world since then. So, so, so just yeah, to be clear, yeah, so just to be clear, so so we're actually seeing a, a general rise in the sea temperature as well as. Yeah what you call marine heat waves, which are pulsed heat events as well. That's correct. So, so we're seeing, yes, that's right, we're seeing a, a, a steady increase in the, um, the tem- temperature of the ocean at all depths. And, um, and of course, like the atmosphere, you know, we, we get extreme events. Um, mm-hmm. Just as we might get a heat wave in the atmosphere, we can get episodes of very high ocean temperatures in the ocean when conditions are right um, and that's what really stresses ecosystems like coral, um, you know, the Great Barrier Reef and so on, um, causing coral bleaching events. And and we're seeing uh, a lot, so the report also documents all the evidence of ecosystem change as well. Mm. And we're seeing um, ecosystems migrating polewards 
obviously, you know, those that are mobile um, are, are moving forward to find a more, um, you know, to find an environment that they're more adapted to. Um, and, and in Australia, it's something like about, you know, 350 kilometres southwards, a, a lot of biomes have moved um, in, and slightly less on the west coast. We're seeing impacts also on um, vegetation in the ocean. So we've seen kelp forest die back around Tasmania, seagrass meadows dying back. And these are really important ecosystems for storing carbon dioxide and also for supporting um, marine life in the ocean. So, you know, again, we've seen many changes. There's a couple of things. So we, you've touched on the sea level rise and you've touched on the um, and the sea surface temperature as well, or the sea temperature, and because it's both surface and, and through the layers, and, and talked a bit about those two. Um, the one that, that I think doesn't get much of a run is the changing pH, the acidity of the ocean. And that, that's, yeah. been, that's gone updated as well. That seems to be going up yeah. faster as well. Yes, so, yes, so, so the, in addition to the heat being absorbed in the ocean, carbon dioxide itself is absorbed into the ocean and that molecule then dissociates and, and produces uh, lower pH values, in other words, higher acidity levels. Um, and, and then that, that in turn uh, flows on and impacts the saturation state of calcium carbonate, which is what uh, calcifying organi- organisms such as corals and shellfish need to form their hard shells. So, um, yeah, so, so pH is declining. Um, and it, to be and, clear, it's, we, not, it's not like, you know, you or I'd stick our foot in the, in the water and it'll, you know, kind of feel more acidic. But if you're making a shell or if you're making a bit of coral, you actually need a fine kind of band within, of pH within which to operate and it's starting to move out of that band. Is that how it's working? Yeah, well, well what uh, these organisms need is calcium carbonate in saturated states and acidification leads to carbonate, uh, you know, a lowering of the saturation state, which makes it hard for them to just the, grab that calcium. Right, they can't access to it. Right. Yeah, it, 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 the, um, yeah, so it's sort of a bit of a two-step process that, that's going on there. And, you know, already you're detecting um, mass changes in certain types of corals in, in certain kinds of forearms in the ocean and so on. So... Um, you know, it's clearly having an impact, but perhaps, you know, we haven't... It, it, it's an additional stressor on all of the other stresses the ocean yeah. environment is already experiencing. And the other thing, too, is that as the ocean gets warmer and it's also becoming more stratified, which means sort of more warmth at the top, um, oxygen levels are dropping, and, of course, that's really critically important for marine ecosystems, you know, they can't survive without oxygen, and the, the oxygen... Uh, or hypoxy zones are also increasing and, and oxygen levels in general are, are it's not a it's not a good look um, I've got to say no. and I, I got a no. one of the things that I was um, <clears throat> mindful of just we've got to have to wrap up um, but but the, the thing that I was really aware of was that when I read the report, or well, when I read the advice to policymakers, I must say, I didn't write the 900 pages, but I read the other one. Um, when I read that, there did seem to be a clear pathway to not doing what we were just running through, to, to, to arresting it. And it does completely and utterly depend on emissions portfolio, um, and, emission, and bringing emissions down. So it, it seems like we're not too late, but gee, we're getting close to it. Is that my? Is that the way to read um, it? Yes, yeah, so there are different assessments on on um, that, that sort of carbon budget. But um, we've got a few years that 
but only a handful of years yeah, uh, okay. based on, on the IPCC assessment where we were, um, you know, if we want to keep, uh, if we want to meet our Paris Agreement, which is what countries signed up to do, um, there's not there's not too many years of, of our carbon budget left, how much carbon we can emit. We, we do have to, if, if we want to keep temperatures to around 2 or, or aim towards 1.5 degrees, we've then you know there needs to be a very significant effort to transform our energy systems to be carbon neutral. Thank you. Thank you, Cathy. I think um, whilst that's been incredibly sobering, it's been it's also been um, really excellent deconstructing of the basics of it. Because but you hear this stuff and you don't really realise where it comes from. Cathy, thank you so much for joining us this morning. You're very welcome. Kathy McGuinness, Dr. Kathy McGuinness, the group leader of um, Climate Extremes and Projections. It's genuinely sobering stuff. Yeah, thank you for that, Anth. <laughs> I know. It does bring the morning down a little, but yeah. I think that we just... This, this, you know, and, and the process by which they've produced this is just so incredibly robust. Oh, absolutely. There's something that worries me when we hear, and, and Kathy's right, and what she's saying is entirely factual, um, phrases like, we have a handful of years left. Because on the one side, you know, we're, we're acutely aware of it, and I'm sure everyone listening to this program is as well, but there's, there's another way you can interpret that statement for those who don't want to hear yep. about climate yep. changes. Yep. Oh, we've got some years left. Let's yep. continue to do what we're doing. So, so I would, I'm going to put there's a, there's a fantastic plain English presentation which I'll stick on our Facebook um, from the IPCC SOROC, which is the, the special report. Um, and it's plain English and it is blunt and it is scientifically factual. And if people have a read of that, and if you have any doubt, um, you don't get scientists saying things like that without there being urgency. Now, in evolutionary terms, sharks are as highly successful a group of apex predators as you can get. Their legend and magnificence has been documented across thousands of years of art and storytelling. As an example, Fijian mythology has a shape-shifting shark god called oh. Dakuwanga, oh, revered cool. for his protection of fishes from dangers at the sea. But despite all of this, sharks have not had the best PR. We're constantly told to fear them, and however, despite what popular culture might have you believe, you're more likely to accidentally die from your faulty Christmas tree lights or being struck by lightning uh, than from an attack by a shark. So what is it about sharks and our perennial fear of them? Are we victims of alarmist media or is there something biologically conservative that tells us not to go in the water in case we encounter something that's actually life-threatening? Journalist Callum Dennis explores these questions in an Australian context in his hot off the press book Sharks, a Fear, a History of Fear in Australia. It's with great pleasure that we welcome him now to talk about these concepts and more. Good morning Callum. And uh, whoop, we'll put your mic on there. Uh, good morning. Good morning. Thanks <laughs> yeah, for having there me. We go. And welcome to Radio Marinara. Now, look, you're a journalist known for your work in the Parliamentary Press Gallery, um, arguably reporting from the biggest shark tank of all. <laughs> what led you to write a book about fear of actual sharks? Look, I grew up in Perth and I've always just had this boyhood fascination with sharks. And uh, then when I started working in the media, it just felt like something that I couldn't avoid, that they were omnipresent. I was covering shark attacks, covering the shark debate, as it's called. And I got really interested in this idea of why we fear sharks and why we so seem to be so obsessed with them in Australia. What was it like growing up in WA, just in terms of how people around you regarded sharks? 
I think it was really shaped by a really prominent shark attack that happened in 2000. A businessman called Ken Crew was in waist deep water in Cottesloe, which is uh, Perth's Bondi Beach. It's the most famous beach. And that was a particularly horrifying shark attack because I mentioned he was in waist deep water, but uh, there were about a dozen people in the water with him at the time. The shark swam straight past him and went for Ken Crew. And it was witnessed by people in uh, a cafe, two cafes that overlooked the beach. And I just remember it being this like uh, gravity defining uh, or gravity altering event rather so much so that Heath Ledger went on to joke about it on the Jay Leno show which and I think is probably the most famous person ever to have been born in Perth Uh, and so in terms of sharks in my childhood that was you know the big thing and then the fascination grew from there I think yeah he went on to apologize for that too didn't he He did apologize for that yes was there a bit of post-traumatic stress for Perth like as a result of that did it change how people approach the beach uh, one of the people I spoke to for the book is Colin Barnett, the former WA Premier, and he certainly, you know, it's all anecdotal, of course, but he lives in Cottesloe. He he mixed in the same social circles as this businessman. And, you know, listening to him, he certainly thinks so. He says that uh, people stopped going to the beach and um, there was actually a spike in attendance at pools um, it, because not only was it, you know, well publicised, but the details of the attack were horrifying and people kept making the comparison to Jaws, which I know upset a lot of people, scientists, conservationists mainly, but it really did seem like something out of a schlocky shark movie. So it was a big deal at the time. Now, you mentioned Jaws, and I wanted to ask you about this because as much as we like to blame Peter Benchley um, and his cohorts, um, fearing sharks in Australia is not a new phenomenon, is it? I wanted to ask you about what you learned about uh, Noongar and uh, Yorra peoples of Western Australia during your research for the book. That's right. So I was really fascinated to learn that um, the Noongar people of the southwest corner of WA, and really um, it, it is the whole corner of the continent, it's Perth all the way down, despite thousands of kilometres of spectacular beaches, of uh, river mouths, of waterways, they didn't swim. And not only didn't, did they not swim, they didn't go beyond knee-deep water. And the reason for that, I'm told by um, elders, is that they were afraid of sharks and sharks were very numerous. And it was really striking when I went back through the first kind of European material everyone kept writing holy shit there are a lot of sharks here and the europeans the europeans excuse my language the europeans um yeah we we never say that no (laughs) the europeans didn't want to swim either and they were noticing the same thing that the noongar people did that not only were there numerous large sharks but they were very very close to shore and then uh in sydney um i was really interested to know what um the eora people of sydney thought of sharks too and I had a less definitive answer but what I was surprised to learn or fascinated to learn is that all around Sydney there are engravings that are thousands of years old older than the Bible and sharks are really prominent there and that includes what some people think is the first ever recorded shark attack in uh, on an engraving that's been estimated to be 5,000 years old in Bondi on Bondi Golf Course that seems to depict someone being attacked by a shark. Mm. And there's a picture of that in the book, isn't there? There is, yes. Yeah, it's amazing. Um, now, you point out in the book not all sharks are created equal um, in terms of their temperament and other sorts of factors. So as an example, grey nurses, white tip reef sharks, they tend to be quite docile. Um, Port Jackson sharks, were, Kate and I were talking during the week, they're like puppies, we go looking for them. Others like great whites and bull sharks tend to at least have a greater potential to be aggressive. Do you think people understand this or just from the, the wide range of people who you've spoken with or do people go sharks... Dangerous. 
Yeah, and I think it's it's one step past that fin dangerous. I mean, <laughs> I, I, I know I've been in the water and seen a dolphin's fin and I've bolted in sheer terror. Yeah. Um, we are we are primed to kind of see that shape uh, and respond accordingly. But no, to, I, I don't think so. I don't think people recognise those differences. And also, I mean, what we know about sharks is changing all the time as well. And so uh, a lot of the historical material I looked at, grey nurses were pointed as culprits. They were vicious man-eaters, so the scientists said. Um, and I think that has to do with the fact they have very pointy teeth and they do look quite menacing. But now we know, as you say, that they're rather docile species. It's interesting, isn't it? And um, it's something that uh, I've noticed, sort of, we've all three of us have done a lot of diving over the years. Um, Cade probably is the only still active diver regularly amongst the three of us. <laughs> In my mind. <laughs> you went recently, Brian. Oh, yeah, yeah, I did. Snorkeling, which is worse, though. I do more snorkeling these days, right. which of course is far more dangerous because you're a little, you know, delicatessen on the floating on the top. Yeah, right. But I mean, is that that's something that I think all three of us mm. have observed, and particularly as you get more experienced in being in the water, you kind of you, you kind of look first and then make assessments rather than immediately kind of having that reaction. Oh, I just yeah, I just blindly go in. I don't pay much attention. I, I do recall a moment um, on the reef where coming around the corner of a bommy into a little channel and seeing about a probably two and a half metre shovel-nosed ray, which is also called shovel-nosed shark. It is a ray, you know. It's a. It's got no sting. It's docile. But I. There was this enormous. You know, adrenaline. Fl- it doesn't matter even if your brain knows. Oh, this thing's completely safe. It can't gum me. You know, but it. But it's a. You know, it's a. And it's a 12-foot thing that looks mm. kind of scary. Mm. I think it is hardwired, isn't it? Uh, <laughs> yeah. The fear bit? Is it like... What do you think? Is there, I, in I think your so. I mean, so, uh, you know, it wasn't that long ago, if you think back to when we were on the savannah, that uh, it would be really, really dangerous to assume that something was safe only to then learn that it wasn't. Yes. And so, yeah. Evolutionary and, dead end, that Exactly. Yeah. So, um, so um, that means that we do have this... Um, bias towards identifying things that are dangerous because as i said across our evolutionary history it made much more sense as a survival strategy to assume things were dangerous rather than assume they were safe Uh, and so i think that that is um, hardwired to an extent Um, but one of the interesting things you mentioned that all three of you um, are divers one of the interesting things i found researching this book is um, scientists and conservationists were often tearing their hair out about why surfers and divers seem to be taking risks or not heeding risk at all and there's a really powerful psychological effect it has a terrible academic sounding name it's called the effect heuristic Mm -hmm. and what that means is Basically, the more you love something, and you guys are all mad keen divers, <laughs> I'm assuming, the more likely you are to underestimate the risk and, and vice versa. <laughs> and me. so it means that yeah. those people that are actually at most at the greatest risk of a shark attack, surfers and divers, are less likely to think they're at risk and therefore do all the things that they should do to mitigate that risk, like purchasing shark shields. <laughs> yeah, and I think exposure is one of those things too. Like if you grow up on the coast and... Every day you go for a surf. That's just part of what you do. And that risk goes further and further back in your mind. Mm. Whereas, I mean, we all jump in the car each day and things like that as well. That, so That's it's, the thing. I, yeah. I put up our Christmas tree lights. Yeah. 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 I, that, that's yeah. the other thing, Callum. I think that we, you know, we're all scientists too. And I think there's a little bit of me that goes, I'm, I'm 300 times more likely to die in a car on the way to the beach than I am from a shark at the beach. Mm. And that, there's a little bit in me that just kind of doesn't let that 
like go it's the scientist i think that you know the facts but then that said <laughs> i lived in perth for a while and it was after the recent the spate of attacks mm-hmm. uh, was that sort of mid 2000 uh, 2000 2014-15 yeah think. so yeah. i was there just after that time and i know i'd actually been surfing out at scarborough and i went surf's not that good um i'm going <laughs> in like it's just not worth <laughs> yeah. it so i think yeah, that exposure sometimes does get allayed by that knowledge. And particularly, you can't avoid it. There's signs everywhere mm. when you go to places like that. And I think um, along that whole Western Australian coast, I think it's something that I guess that must be a part of the way that they're dealing with this is to try and inform the public more to help deal That's with right. what That's right. And the there. same thing's yeah. happening in um, certainly northern New South Wales as well. In fact, it's a lot more prominent there. If you go to a beach in Ballina, you can't ignore shark mm. warnings and um, you know advice and public information campaigns about how to be shark smart um, which again goes down to this question of risk um, it's something I go to a lot in the book one of the things I found is that you know the only way we are going to reduce the risk of shark attack is by individual people in the ocean making smarter decisions but telling them that they're more likely to die from Christmas <laughs> yeah. lights probably isn't going to lead them to therefore consider <laughs> no, their risk no 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 that works for us scientists yeah, yeah. yeah. well <clears throat> and, and, yeah and again to go to continue on this point, I mean, humans are really bad at probability. Yeah. And there have yeah, yeah. been a number of studies that have shown that even um, even scientists are bad. There was one particular study, uh, it looked at clinical psychiatrists, and they were presented with a set of symptoms uh, and told for a fictional patient, Mr. Jones, and told that Mr. Jones then went on to, you know, went, went on to commit violent crimes and asked for their recommendation. They were presented with this option. Um, they said 10% of patients like Mr. Jones will go on to commit crimes should you lock him up. And then they were given another construction. They said uh, 10 in 100 patients like Mr. Jones are going to go and commit violent crimes should you lock him up. And they all got it wrong. Even though it's the exact same figure, clinical psychiatrists didn't understand that 10% and 10 in 100 100. are the same number. I think given the next show is going to be basically hosted by clinical psychiatrists, we'll put this to them and see how they respond to that. They they can uh, cram and do some homework now. (laughs) And work out the basic maths. Exactly. (laughs) We're going to have to wrap up in a second. I had a heap of stuff I wanted to talk to you about, um, about the book. I think probably the last thing that I'll raise is the concept of netting because Mm. you you go into that. So this is about um, various measures that have been put in place to try and protect people going to the beach from potential shark um, encounters, I'm going to call it that. Mm. Um, So these beach netting programs that have been set up, um, we mentioned some figures on the show a couple of weeks ago talking about the the huge number of animals that are caught in these nets which are not actually the target species. Um, where have you sort of landed on that with all the various people that you've spoken with in terms of, you know, should we be going and setting up these nets and, and catching dolphins and turtles and uh, and uh, sort of the not the target species of shark that they're set up to catch? I think the short answer is no, and I think that's where public opinion is shifting to. There was a trial in northern New South Wales, and once people presented with data about how much bycatch ended up in those nets, public opinion swung quite sharply against nets. I think that um, we have a really shocking record in Australia of killing and uh, species and making them extinct. And so uh, even though it might reduce the risk somewhat it might prevent a shark attack or two uh, and that's one of the conclusions I reach in the book that there probably has been some level of risk reduction we just don't know how big that the the, um, the side effects aren't worth it I mean tens and tens of thousands of animals are caught in these nets each year uh, and basically drown 
Last question, and I had so many more, but I'm going <laughs> to land on this one. Um, a question that you set out to answer was how much fear is healthy? Mm. Did you come to an answer for this for yourself, even from a personal point of view? Yeah, I, so as I was researching this book, I got more terrified of going into the water. I was immersing myself in shark attack stories, really vivid um, descriptions of attacks and injuries and aftermath, coroner's reports. And even though I knew that I was being irrational, I found that I couldn't go out beyond the waves. And so I kind of end the book um, talking about this free dive I did with sharks in Hawaii that I did to kind of snap myself back to sense. Um, And so for my own self, I definitely have much more of an appreciation uh, of uh, what a shark attack is like if you're unlucky enough uh, to go through one, of the fact that they're probably more frequent or high risk than we think they are, but also that we just need to keep a cool head about it. And if we want to reduce shark attacks, the answer isn't nets. It's actually what people do when they're in the ocean and the decisions they make. Fantastic note to end on. Thanks so much for joining us this morning. Thanks for having me. Um, If you're interested in getting a copy of this book, and you should be, it's called Sharks, A History of Fear in Australia by Callum Dennis, published by Affirm Press and out now in all good bookstores. Callum, thanks so much for joining us. Thanks. It's been an absolute pleasure. You're listening to Radio Marinara here on Triple R. All right. You're back just shortly. I'm just going to do a quick pug for the Australian Marine Science Association's Victorian branch. On Tuesday night, there's an event called Showcasing Victoria's Marine Science. It's going to be at RMIT University Stories Hall in Swanson Street, Melbourne from 6 to 7 o'clock. It has six of Victoria's best and brightest scientists, including Wing Yang Chen from Melbourne University discussing can we use science to change the future of our coral reefs. We have John Lewis, who is a marine consultant who specialises in marine pests looking at how did they get here, what is their impact on it and what is their impact on our coastal environment. There'll be Mariella Sotoberilov who's a postdoctorate research fellow at RMIT who is looking at seagrass dynamics in Port Phillip Bay and how they've changed from the 1930s to present and discussing the benefit of a long-term data set, one of the few things we have in science these days. We've got Mark R. Shorters, and this is one I'm personally looking forward to. He's a professor, professor of measurement science at RMIT and he's looking at towards an automatic system for fish detection and species classification in underwater videos. And what that means is that you just play a video and the machine tells you what's there. <laughs> Amazing. So, yes. So when's that on? That is on next Tuesday at 6 o'clock at RMIT. So just jump online, Eventbrite, uh, showcasing Victoria's Marine Science. Tickets are $5 concession, 10 And we'll price. be back in one tick with Zoe Britton. It gives me great pleasure to introduce Zoe Britton, who's a student at Deakin University. Um, as I mentioned at the start of the show, she doesn't have one. She has two degrees. One is in anthropology and the second environmental science. Her research involves collaborating with local Indigenous people to learn about their traditional knowledge of seaweeds. And that is exactly what she's here to talk to us about. Welcome, Zoe. Good morning, everyone. Look, I'm going to start off with ignoring the topic and just going straight out to a personal question. What is your favourite seaweed and why? You've obviously spent some time around them now and talked about them a lot. Do you have um, one? That's it's a really hard question. There's so many good ones. I think my... <laughs> that's a favourite child question. Yeah, yeah it is. <laughs> well, I that's think why it's personal. Probably my favourite would be... Uh, it's got a couple of names, depends who you ask, but the sea lettuce, most people will know it as, oh, yeah. so Ulva, yeah. Ulva, mm-hmm. Ulva species, yep. just because it's so versatile and you can eat it right out of the water if you know it's clean <laughs> enough. <laughs> Is that a perfect kind of bridge into the conversation about Indigenous uses of seaweed? Yeah, it's definitely one of them, that's yeah. for sure. So, uh, Well... <laughs> 
So what have you learned from your research? A lot. Yeah. So we pretty much started this research. Um, the broader story is Australia is looking to uh, commercially grow seaweed. It's a huge industry, billions, millions of dollars, but all of our species are only found here. So can't really copy anybody. And there was a lot of industry meetings going on saying, well, no one in Australia eats seaweed. What are we going to do? And we pretty much said, well, haven't really asked everyone, have we? And so I've been meeting with elders to discuss um, how they have used and continue to use seaweed. Uh, I've spoken to four elders um, as of now, a lot more uh, in the works, but we've already found over 50 separate uses. Yeah, that was going to be one of my questions because, I mean, one of the things as scientists we tend to do is if we're about to embark upon a project, we jump into the literature and we have a look through. Now, I guess you didn't have that luxury of there being a huge amount of literature there. As you said, Australia, we haven't really used that. So you obviously had to go out and make connections and have these conversations. And I'm guessing that's a hell of a lot different to sitting in front of a computer and just typing in search words. How did you go about that? How did you make these connections? How did you sit down and have these stories? Were there lots of cups of tea? How did it, how did it come about? Yeah, so I, in my undergrad, I did uh, spent a whole summer in the State Library looking in the archives for that sort of thing. And we didn't find very much enough to show that there was use, but nothing of detail. So I was lucky... Um, in my honours and now going on to my PhD, I actually have four supervisors so across all different um, schools, so not just science but architecture and built environment, um, also Ike at Deakin, which is the Institute for Koori Education. So it's all been through um, pre-existing relationships that my supervisors have had and then it's sort of been a snowball effect from there. So we didn't really know how much would be left or who would be interested And literally within three months of starting my honours, we went from having three people we'd speak to to having eight people having to update all of our ethics and everything. And now um, we've got a sort of backlog of around 20 people who are looking to talk to us about it. That's fantastic. Is I, the, can I just ask about yeah. the geography of your study? Are you limiting it to um, Victorian coastline or are you, are you going sort of beyond that? So we're following the Great Southern Reef pretty much. So that's where all the seaweed diversity is. It's got the um, highest diversity of anywhere in the world, which is pretty exciting, lots to choose from. So we're pretty much following that around and um, we're looking to map at the moment um, from about Adelaide around to Sydney, around the coast, every group along there, um, Tasmania. And I've also um, beginning talks with some um, Maori peoples from New Zealand as well um, to include uh, their knowledge and do a bit of a comparative study to Australians. So do we share species in common with New Zealand? Are there quite a few? Uh, this is the thing as well. We do share a number, yeah. but we there's literally no information out there. So this is pretty much new ground we're looking into uses and the big thing we also want to look at is um it's a good opportunity potentially depending on what knowledge is there about um shifting baseline measurements so if we can speak to people who know that for you know 10,000 years ago there was this species here that they used for this and it's not found there anymore or not in high abundance um that can tell us a lot about what um colonization has done I'm guessing your PhD is going to go for about 10 years by the sound of it. <laughs> um, I've just got one quickie. We know that we can eat seaweed. What else can we do with it? What can't you do with it? That's probably an easier right. question to answer. But <laughs> Give us a couple of good ones. We've already found um, it's used 
widely medicinally from everything from pain management to wound care. Uh, it's used to make mattresses, to waterproof houses, to make water carriers. Um, they'd use it to keep fish and crustaceans alive uh, by keeping them in a bag with damp seaweed to the point where they could um, take them on a five-day inland journey and they'd still be alive. Yeah, so it's amazing. Um, They use it to make shoes, um, so process it over a number of days to make shoes and mattresses, a whole range of things. It's a pretty fantastic resource. Where are you at, Zoe, with your research? So I have just finished my honours, so I'm studying my PhD, fingers crossed, at the end of this year, start of next year, but hasn't really ended in the interim of course because it's all about those relationship building and meeting people so you're sort at of, foundation stage yeah it's yeah. sort of never ending so we're um now moving towards in some groups depending on um who we're talking to uh some were up to having uh, group discussions so with not just elders but community members and others it's making those first having cups of tea and getting to know each other. Now, unfortunately, we're going to have to wrap up, but I've got one quick plug is that if you want to hear more from Zoe, she's going to be presenting at the Great Victorian Fish Count Our Marine Marine Life Rocks event, which is going to be at the Green Building in Carlton on this Wednesday, the 16th of October, 6 to 8.30. Tickets are free. There's going to be drinks and there's also going to be some good conversation. And Di Bray will also be presenting with her. But just to finish up, I've got a quick question for you. One of the references in the paper you use was from an ABC Catalyst program called Can Seaweed Save the World? Can it? <laughs> well, <laughs> You've got 30 seconds. Well, you have to watch it to find out, I say. So my supervisor um, sort of wraps that up at the very end and I think that's part of my research can definitely save the world if we do it properly and that's why it's important to ask these questions and to listen to people when they tell us the ways these resources can be managed properly that's fantastic thank you i have a feeling we're going to catch up with you several times over the course of your phd thank you very much no worries absolutely fantastic hi this is bron burton thanks for listening to the podcast of triple r's radio marinara a weekly radio show exploring all things wet and salty Broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia every Sunday. Hope you enjoy the podcast and feel free to get in touch with us via Radio Marinara's Facebook page.